Hello and welcome to the Practical Neurology Editor's Choice podcast. We're obviously very delighted to have the December issue, which we think once again is packed full of very interesting papers that hopefully will get you ready for Christmas in a, in a festive mood. As always, it's the two of us. I'm Garrett Fuller and I'm joined now with my colleague Phil Smith. And we're going to discuss what we took away from a lot of the papers that we're discussing now. Um, the editor's choice is always a challenging uh, decision and we won't reiterate the conversation we seem to be having uh, on a regular basis in relation to that. But it, it, suffice it to say, this time it's an absolute cracker. And uh, uh, Phil's going to introduce the first paper, uh, which is localization and Focal Epilepsy. Thank you, Guy. I mean, this is by uh, Fumida Chowdhury and Matthew Walker from the National Centre for Epilepsy in Chalfont in London. And... This was uh, born out of Matthew's lecture to the ABN some time ago, and he showed multiple videos and really wowed us with his ability to localise seizures using the patient's symptoms and the semiology. And uh, it's clearly the extensive experience that they have with epilepsy surgery video EEG monitoring that uh, has allowed this improved localization of epileptic seizures from from the symptoms from the videos from uh, from the EEGs there's actually a fair uh, relationship between the localization and lateralization but there are a few caveats uh, not least that a lot of the cortex is silent and therefore the symptomatogenic zone the area where the symptoms arise from may be quite remote from the epileptogenic zone, the bit of the brain that has to be removed to cure the epilepsy. Uh, and the other thing is that some seizures are actually inhibitory or disinhibitory, and so the manifestations are not always so predictable. There is this uh, concept of an ictal wavefront, the uh, uh, the one millimetre a second slow activation of brain areas, the sort of thing that uh, dominates in temporal lobe seizures. But there's also the ictal discharge, the 300 millimetres per second, uh, the disruption of brain networks that happens very rapidly and is much more characteristic of uh, frontal seizures where disinhibition is the, is the main issue. So this paper, uh, so well illustrated with videos and clearly some localization symptoms are really very valuable contralateral dystonia for example um, whereas others are like like automotive features are much less so um, but we run through frontal temporal occipital parietal we we run through the insula where anterior insula can give rise to pain whereas uh, posterior insula typically choking um, I think it might be the other way around, actually. Sorry, I misread that. And uh, the, the, um, the, the anterior cingulate, again, this comes uh, th with this in incredible sign, the, the chapeau de gendarme, which uh, is incredible only for the, for the name that's a very impressive and very grand roundsmanship type of name, the inverted crescent that the, uh, the lower lip goes into. And you could say chapeau de gendarme, I think they have flat caps, don't they? But actually this applies to the Napoleonic uh, hats, which are inverted crescents, a bit like Captain Pugwash. Um, the... Uh, the lateralizing aspects of it, I, I found this particularly interesting, actually, that um, I mentioned if you get a, a contralateral um, 
clonic or tonic movement or the figure of four uh, with the outstretched arm. Um, this is clearly contralateral and they can also get um, contralateral sensory or auditory or, or visual aura. Um, and also epileptic nystagmus, the fast phase being away from the side of the lesion. Those are quite helpful lateralizing. But ipsilaterally, um, apparently the last clonic jerk of a generalized tonic-clonic seizure is ipsilateral. And uh, we all know also about the, the nose wipe as well. The, the, the very last thing in the seizure might be a nose wipe with the ipsilateral hand. Um, there are also a couple of things that are, that are dominant. Well, dominant hemisphere, we know uh, uh, dysphasia, of course, whereas ictal speech is non-dominant. And another thing that I perhaps hadn't twigged was that uh, non-dominant uh, would also relate to periictal drinking, ictal spitting, vomiting, and urge to urinate. They're, they're all uh, non-dominant. So I, I really enjoyed this paper. I mean, it, it's it's worth reading and rereading. And I think for a long time to come, it will be the, the standard text to look back on when, when we're interested in uh, localising epilepsy. And I think, uh, by the way, listeners, I feel I should uh, highlight the fact that uh, during his talk, uh, particularly about the uh, chapeau de gendarme sign, uh, Phil was actually mimicking the appropriate facial features uh, during the chat. But I think the, the really interesting thing about this paper is not just the, the, the rich clinical data that it pr produces, but the fact that uh, it shows you what to look for. I mean, so often, so many of the features that are described here, uh, you could easily miss if you weren't looking for them. And I think the crucial thing is this almost gives you the... Um, the neurological vocabulary to try and help inform your description and assessment of patients with epilepsy. So a, a wonderful paper and well worth looking at the online version so you can pick up and follow the videos uh, which are all linked to that site. Yeah, thank you. So, I mean, the, the, the other paper we're going to discuss actually uh, in some detail is, is frailty. I mean, this, this is... Uh, a lovely paper um, uh, from Lucy Pollock, who's a geriatrician in Taunton, and Matthew Smith, who's uh, a, a neurology trainee in Bristol. So, uh, Garrett, you're going to introduce this, uh, this paper, Frailty. I mean, this is one of the series of things where we actually ask somebody outside the neurology to tell us about something important in their specialty, broadly speaking, telling us what we should know about it. And the intriguing thing about frailty is, is that it's becoming an increasingly important part of all medicine as the population, um, certainly in the UK, ages. And frailty is one of those things which is easy to ignore, but actually is an incredibly important element. Um, 10% of patients of 65 are frail, but once you get over uh, 85, it's pretty much a half. So once you get over 85, frailty is a very significant factor. And what is frailty? Well, frailty is the, the uh, combination either of the loss of reserve as you age or the accumulation of multiple focal deficits across a range of different things. And obviously, a lot of the manifestations are neurological, cognitive, gait, um, hearing, uh, sensory appreciation, and so on. And to a certain extent, what Lucy and uh, Matthew have done is that they've taken us on a tour of what it is to be a geriatrician uh, or how to highlight these different elements and what's so important. And lots of mantras. I mean, one, one's always uh, helped by these little uh, nuggets to, to tell you what to do. So, for example, one of their quotes is, um, 
we are unlikely to be able to make this person any better than they were two weeks before admission. So they're obviously focusing on an acute deterioration, but the idea that actually the the background level you're working against is rather different. Um, They do cite actually um, untreated Parkinson's uh, or uh, severe hypothyroidism as the things that would break that uh, line. The the other thing that they, they talk about is that some simple strategies to try and make things easier. Uh, there's a brief description, for example, as to how to repair a hearing aid if you're trying to take a history with someone and they can't get the thing to turn on and off or the battery's not working, which I found was, was helpful. They talk about the range of medication, the fact that uh, it, the notion that every medication must earn its place and the idea that you therefore want to look really quite critically as to what people are taking and recognising that Actually, a, a tablet which may have been helpful temporarily may not uh, continue to be, and uh, the side effects are, however, cumulative and continuous. The other theme which I think is quite dominant through the whole thing is the fact that this frailty shapes expectation and prognosis, so that actually a large part of um, the management of these patients is, is a, a realistic and appropriate discussion with them primarily and their families and so on, to work out how best to try and manage them and what it can be reasonably expected and, and what decisions to, to make. So I think this is a really thoughtful and, um, I mean, if one says old-fashioned, it's in the, in the best possible sense, looking back to the uh, old, uh, long-standing traditions of medicine, you know, first do no harm, try and help what you can help and support what you can't help. And, and it's, I think, captures those notions very nicely. Yeah, I mean, old-fashioned, but actually the way forward. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, this, this, I think, is clinical wisdom, really. I mean, it, it is uh, showing how uh, the inherent complexity of uh, care of the elderly uh, is something we should be embracing. I mean, we, we would move away from just wanting a single diagnosis, which is the way we're used to doing things in neurology. Um, and uh, it's, it really is a very practical paper. You, you, you know, we, we don't have many papers that, that should, you, know, you need a screwdriver and, and repair a hearing aid, this sort of thing. But, but I, I think that that is great. Um, uh, it's taking the holistic view of patients. And, and also the, the, the simple things... Um, clean teeth, uh, clean glasses, you know, think, making sure the hearing aid is, is not actually uh, on the desk on the side, but is actually in, in the ear. And attending to things like constipation, dehydration, sedation, all those sort of things. Um, uh, I, no, I, I think it, it's, it's actually we should be thinking about this much, much more. Tom has written a, a great editorial to go with it. I don't know if you wanted to to to, to mention that because he, he he's a beautiful metaphor. Yeah, we, we were so impressed by the paper that uh, we felt that we should get an editorial really to link it to neurology. And Tom Hughes, who does a lot of work with patients with stroke as well as uh, obviously a very active general neurologist, wrote a very nice um, editorial for us and has picked up. I, I think what we were struck was a very nice visual metaphor um, for you to look at in the in the paper. Um, to try and capture the difference between focal deficits and frailty, uh, which hopefully will help you think about it. You're going to say what it is for those who... uh... I think we should leave an element of excitement, Phil. Okay, all right. They they will open the pages with with, anticipation. It's it's botanical, isn't it? uh, (laughs) Botanical. 
And uh, I did just want a, a shout out for, for Lucy's book, actually. So uh, the reason that we um, uh, were, were, were drawn to her writing was she wrote a great book called The Book About Getting Older, which uh, we, we want to discuss at a book club soon. But what, one of the, the things in this, I just want to test this on you, Garrett, maybe. So she says that uh, at what age, uh, when you blow out the candles on your birthday cake, uh, do you have only a 50-50 chance of, of surviving to the next birthday? So if you ask um, uh, most of the population, they would say, ooh, maybe 85, 90. You ask most medical students, they say, ooh, 55, 60. You know, <laughs> the answer, ladies and gents, is 104. So actually, uh, it's not until then that the, uh, the, the number of people who are 105 is actually half the number of who, who are 104. So um, it's uh, it's not so bad, is it? It's a fairly positive note too. I, I thought it was in some way connected to the act of blowing out the candles, but it turns out not to be. <laughs> no, no, not yet. So, uh, and see, there is there is another paper in the in the journal. Joseph Heckman has he, has uh, written on uh, my oldest stroke patient. This was one that Lucy reviewed for us as well. So. Uh, uh, he, this is someone of, of 106, actually, who, who was um, uh, helped anyway by the, the normal standard protocols for, um, for stroke. I, th- I mean, I think the Joseph, Joseph Heckman's uh, my oldest stroke patient, I thought rather neatly captured the idea that age is just a number in that this was a very uh, active patient who had a stroke and had a good uh, outcome despite not really having much in the way of treatment. And... Uh, I think one of the th- things that captured our attention was a very nice histogram showing the distribution of age of patients with stroke and highlighting quite how much an outlier this patient was. Um, but equally, the, the same strategies were needed. So we move on to something actually very much more um, common, which is migraine. And um, really, once again, thinking about the things that we tend not to think about. So this, we've got a very nice paper which is uh, dealing with migraine, uh, migraine beyond pain, uh, which is from uh, Nazir Karsan and uh, Peter Goadsby. And very neatly, this illustrates the range of different things that can happen. And once you're aware of, your patients will tell you about them and you'll listen. And so, uh, Phil, I think you've got uh, some observations in relation yeah, to that. Yeah, some observations but from personal experience as well, because I'm one of uh, the, the quite high proportion of the population who gets migraine. But uh, it, the, reading this paper, of course, the migraine starts quite a few days before the pain begins and goes on for a few days after as, as well. Uh, the, the concept of uh, migraine being much more than pain, having... Uh, uh, even before the well before the aura, there's this uh, premonitory period. I prefer to call it prodrome, but uh, it's premonitory period of uh, tiredness and concentration difficulty, mood change, yawning, etc. Um, and uh, then uh, the the relatively brief period of the of the throbbing headache, and then followed by a postdrome of uh, tiredness and concentration difficulty and clouding of cognition. So, you know, I think that. Um, uh, we were all recognise, I think, that um, there is an intolerance of uh, intense stimuli such as perfumes and bright lights and this sort of thing in the build-up to a migraine headache and uh, a mood change as well. 
And many people, of course, will blame the craving for sweet things on uh, then they have a bit of chocolate and will say the chocolate caused the migraine. I think some time ago that was uh, seen really as uh, uh, effect rather than cause of the migraine. And similarly, the strong perfumes and bright lights, although I can't help feeling they are part of it, uh, being a migraineur myself. But now I'm told that's just because I'm sensitive to lights in in what was going to be a migraine anyway. Um, I think that the main plea from the authors is that uh, they that neurologists should inquire more about these symptoms either side of it, not just concentrate on the associated photophobia, hyperacusis, nausea and vomiting that goes with a, uh, a headache, but also think about these cognitive mood and fatigue symptoms either side of the headache. So, uh, and really a call for more research in the field, I think. Yeah. But I, I think in practical terms, I mean, aside from the notion of false attribution of triggers that you've mentioned, I think one of the observations is that if you have a prodrome and uh, the, the migraine and then a postdrome, then broadly speaking, if you're thinking about prophylaxis and the pros and cons of treatment, you may actually be trading in not just one lost or two or three lost days a month, but actually four or five, you know, with the day before and the day after and so on, tied in in uh, uh, into the whole package. So the, the, the risk-benefit analysis in your discussion with your patients can actually move to a slightly different place. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought it was very useful and very interesting and, um, you know, clearly has resonance with um, migraine sufferers, indeed, such as you, Phil. So it does. And, good uh, news. Ju- just, yeah, and I, I notice you call it migraine, I call it migraine, most patients call it migraine. I don't know whether we would accept uh, that hemicrania could ever be hemicrania, but um, what, what do you think? Is, is either correct? Well, I, I think um, I should refer to it as migraine, whereas obviously you have it, so you should have it as migraine. Okay, okay, yeah. The, the sufferers should call it migraine. Great. Right. Let's uh, let's move. Well, I mean, headache really, really very, very common and uh, very important. Um, another important, though less common condition is relating to EMGUS, uh, monoclonal gammopathy of uncertain significance, uh, and uh, and all of the things that can resemble EMGUS and all of the things that EMGUS can turn into. So beyond EMGUS. So this is. Uh, I mean, this is a cracking paper, actually. This is Antonia Carroll and Mike Lunn. Uh, and Garrett, you're going to say a bit about this, please. Yeah, I mean, neuropathies are very common. And actually, as part of the package, we will typically do a paraprotein strip of one sort or another. And uh, a lot of the time, it'll come back with a band. And you're then left with a question as to what to do about it. And you're obviously mostly familiar with the fact that the vast majority of patients will have an associated neuropathy. The two are not that uncommon, particularly as you get older. And actually, it behaves in other way, in all other respects, like a chronic uh, axonal neuropathy. However, there's this background feeling that it could be one of these other things. And broadly speaking, one of these other things is quite a range of different things, you know, canomad, uh, IG, uh, M anti-mag neuropathies. There's a, a long, large spectrum of different uh, different uh, types of neuropathy associated uh, with paraproteins of different sorts. And, and I think what they've done here is they've dissected this and actually given you some very straightforward um, uh, algorithms to try and think through as to how to try and tackle this. Yeah, trying to make sure that you do enough when you have to, but not too much when you don't. 
And I think um, by getting all the various things, you know, when should you start worrying about amyloid? When should you think about the hyperviscosity syndromes? All these different things. Uh, it takes you very neatly through that range of different options. So I, I would thoroughly recommend it. And I think... Um, Clearly, you need to do some simple things, but you also need to make friends with the haematologist because clearly a lot of the time there is a bit of an intersection and you need to have a good working relationship to make sure you do the right things in relation to those um, paraproteins, that they're followed up appropriately and where needed, uh, sometimes it involves treatment through the haematologist as well. So yeah. a, a very nice paper and I think one that people will turn to just as a very useful and simple aid memoir. Yeah, yeah, and uh, comprehensive and really packed to the rafters with information. I mean, it, it really is a, a uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's done very, very well. I mean, these um, uh, algorithms, one for IgG uh, paraproteinemia, one for IgM paraproteinemia, and the working out the, uh, the differential diagnosis, thinking of myeloma, lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, Waldenstrom's, uh, Phil, I mean, Phil, you're frightening them. You're frightening them. <laughs> this is, well, it was it was Waldenstrom <laughs> who first described Emga, so I thought he had to get a mention anyway. Uh, but uh, um, I, I, you know, I, I think that um, th this is one definitely to refer to next time you 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 have a patient with Emgus and uh, I think you'll be treated uh, with uh, the really very very comprehensive description of all of the all of the uh, things we should be thinking of, and yet it. Yet, comes back to clinical phenotyping. It is a, about knowing your basic neurology, taking a detailed history and uh, using the neurophysiology judiciously as well, but working in, in an MDT environment, especially with haematology, as we've heard. So, um, yeah, lo love the paper, learnt a lot, um, but slightly frightening, as you say, for, uh, uh, for, for people who deal mostly with epilepsy. <laughs> Which brings us back to another uh, very straightforward issue, or rather an issue that we perhaps don't think about too much, but one which undoubtedly uh, is uh, going to be something that will help our patients. And that's catheter management, uh, what neurologists need to know. So once again, we're looking over the fence uh, to something which one of our colleagues, in this case the urologist, would have the uh, true expertise. And we've got a very nice paper which comes from the National, and it's uh, Callum Clark, Collett, Hauslam, uh, Sakin Malder and uh, led by Jalish Panika. And this is a really nice, straightforward paper talking about you know, what kinds of catheters are available, what you should do with a catheter, the complications of catheters, and uh, really gives you a very nice background to all those slightly tricky questions which sometimes arise um, about whether you should go for a suprapubic, whether you should go for a conventional catheter, what are the options available, and what you should do about it. Now, uh, a lot of the time, if you haven't had the opportunity to think about this, a lot of the time your patients will know a lot more about all of this than you do. And the, the idea of this is that you will be able to understand what options are truly available. Now, clearly, you're not going to be an expert on this with a, reading this paper, but it gives you a very nice background as to what to think about. So uh, another paper that hopefully people will find interesting. Yeah. One of the things I was particularly interested in was the... Uh, the, the, the variation, in, including the uh, Mitrofenov catheter, something I hadn't uh, heard about. So th this a surgically connected, constructed tube connecting the bladder to the abdomen, abdominal surface using the, uh, the appendix. So uh, a way of giving much less uh, intrusive um, 
uh, catheterization. Um, and, uh, but I think something that is more aimed at, uh, at children, um, but is, uh, you know, maybe a, a, an option that, that is much less intrusive and consistent with intimacy and intercourse, etc. Um, so, so something I, I was particularly taken by in, in, the, uh, in, in the discussion. So that, having been said, for the most part, is very practical and straightforward, <laughs> covering the sorts of things you actually hear and know about. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the things it does mention, obviously, is that, that um, uh, catheter problems in the patients with spinal cord lesions can lead to significant problems with autonomic dysreflexia, which links nicely to another paper that I think you're going to talk about in our film. Yeah, and actually, just, bef- just before I do, I mean, one, one of the um, things that maybe relates particularly to... Uh, to frailty is that uh, with, with the catheters is, is that the recommendation that we should um, uh, download an app which shows where all of, all the public toilets are. I think that I mean the, the, this is something that's really nice and practical about uh, the paper, and also that uh, people with um, uh, catheter problems who need the in intimacy to be able to do intermittent self catheterization uh, should access radar keys as well certainly in the uk anyway we can uh, get access to disabled toilets nine nine thousand of them um by purchasing a radar key so something that might be uh, of interest uh, to uh, men as they age as well as uh, people with other forms of frailty so to come back to the um really excellent paper um on um Autonomic dysreflexia in spinal cord injury. This is by uh, Manish Desai uh, and colleagues from the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital in London, and uh, is built upon another excellent paper that they wrote in in the BMJ about this, and uh, relates, of course, to uh, uh, the emergency, the neurological emergency that uh, people with a spinal cord lesion at T6 and above are vulnerable to. It's the, the truth is that it's um, something that patients with spinal cord lesions will be very familiar with, as will their carers. And they are mostly, therefore, not in danger as long as they are uh, conscious themselves and with somebody who knows about their condition. The danger is if they come into hospital and uh, are managed, uh, even in neurological wards, by people not familiar with uh, this condition, or at least not familiar with the way that that, that it can escalate and that it uh, uh, needs to be managed. So um, it, it contains a great diagram which shows the mechanism of it. And um, uh, I think that I would just like to... Uh, try it out on Geraint that, um, to see if I've really understood what is going on here, because uh, uh, I've always found autonomic dysreflexia quite a difficult thing to grasp, but it seems very, very simple the way they've explained it with their fantastic diagram. So if we have a lesion uh, at or above T6, especially a complete injury, then uh, any stimulus, which can be any of the six Bs, mostly bladder, and therefore the relevance to the catheter, um, if you've got a blocked catheter, but bladder, bowel, back passage, bones, boils, babies, are there Bs? Anything like that will cause a sympathetic overreaction in a disinhibited spinal cord. And uh, this leads, therefore, to uh, a driving up of blood pressure, which can be very high, but typically above 20 millimetres of mercury at least. And this then stimulates the 
uh, baroreceptors in the carotid and uh, uh, aorta and the brainstem should send out its parasympathetic signals and it slows the heart down certainly and it tries to vasodilate but it can only vasodilate the top half of the body because the signal can't get below T6 and therefore the bottom half of the body is pale and uh, is uh, uh, goose pimply and the blood pressure is still very high in the in this throughout the, the, the entire lower body. So it's a uh, an emergency. It's an emergency where patients need to be sat up and their clothes need to be loosened and you immediately need to look for what is causing it and it's usually going to be bladder uh, but it could be a number of other things including pressure sores etc. So does, does that sound like a reasonable explanation of autonomic dysreflexia? Yeah, no, absolutely. Something? I mean, I think that the, the key thing is that you have an autonomic response which is different to one half of the body to the other half. And so, they're, in essence, they're in, in conflict. And the, the, the additional management you didn't mention, which I'm sure um, people will pick up with a very nice flow diagram in the um, uh, article, is the, if you can give them people vasodilators, you can, in essence, get the bottom half to join in uh, start dropping the blood pressure and making everything settle down quite promptly. So, um, you know, there are some symptomatic things, the sublingual nifedipine being very often something which is very helpful. But very nice, very nice pictures. And uh, we are very grateful to our colleagues in the BMJ for letting us pick up and uh, use some of the images from that. Great. Okay. Well, um, it is a really, really uh, good issue we've got here this this time. It's um, and and there there are some other things with with the theme of observation as well. A, a couple of uh, uh, interesting case reports. So something that's quite relevant these days: the face mask sign. This, I mean, this is. Uh, uh, a case report from uh, Nijmegen in the Netherlands uh, with an accompanying editorial from Rajiv De Silva as well, uh, highlighting that um, wearing a face mask in people with sensory ataxia in particular, but maybe cerebellar ataxia as well, uh, by disrupting some of the visual field may worsen, sometimes quite dramatically, uh, the, the ataxia. So, Rajiv has, in his editorial, has given us a few other ways where, by, by which uh, we can worsen ataxia if we're not careful. So, uh, so a few nice practical tips there. Yeah, and we've got a few other very nice simple papers uh, highlighting observations. So, um, uh, the hand mechanogram is not something we'd necessarily all run at, but uh, one of our colleagues uh, noticed the phenomena where if you uh, have a patient in uh, epilepsy partialis continua, they produce a regular jerking type movement. So if you get a patient to draw a line, you can capture um, a temporal and uh, a motor phenomena in, in, in the simplest of tests. So a nice, simple, elegant piece of clinical observation. And um, we were another very brief paper where somebody noticed that if you ask patients on uh, with Parkinson's to draw a picture if they were on a dopamine agonist very often they drew much more florid pictures and again a simple observation without a huge amount of justification behind it but a hypothesis nonetheless uh, to make people think about the everyday observations and what they can offer. Yeah and just just to show that we are up to speed and down with the kids we've got something on neuro twitter so we got a tweetorial uh, about making a tweetorial uh, this is Aaron Berkovich from uh, from Los Angeles. It's, uh, uh, and it, and the paper is built on a series of um, tweets, really. So uh, have a look at the issue and, and see what you think about that and maybe build your own tweetorial. That's what we would like you to do. 
Yeah, so it's Catherine Albin and Aaron Berkovich. Um, in fact, a collaboration from two sides of America, uh, Emory University in Atlanta and uh, Pasadena. And I think, I mean, Twitter is probably slightly old hat to a lot of these people in the TikTok decora- generation. But um, it, it, it is a way and has proved to be a way, particularly during um, lockdown, to be able to run a tutorial at a distance where people can join in, there can be a dialogue and so on. And uh, as Phil says, we've got this very nice sequence, which is actually a series of tweets to show you how to build it and how to, to tie people up to it. So many of the older neurologists may not be necessarily um, electronic uh, natives. However, the opportunity to try and use these different things hopefully will um, allow people to manage education without necessarily having everyone around the table in the same room. Yeah, beautifully put. Older neurologists, I I fear that uh, that might be our generation, guys, and uh, we're we're looking at reading the catheter one with uh, great interest and uh, the frailty one with even greater interest. But one (laughs) one that always uh, interests us, I think, is Neurology Book Club. So we've got a sort of Christmas present list, haven't we, I think, um, of recommended neurology book clubs. Um, We talked about it last time briefly at the end, but how many people get through to the end of the podcast, we've no idea. We know that two and a half thousand uh, log into the first bit, but uh, um, if you made it to the end, that's great. So there is a Neurology Book Club recommended list topped by Oliver Sacks and the man who mistook his wife for a hat, but uh, uh, we've um, got a a list of some 25 uh, books, which we we would say worked the best uh, in Uh, various neurology book clubs as contributed to by those who've um, uh, reported their book club um, uh, in the in practical neurology in the last few years I I think we can pitch this in two ways Phil we can either describe it as you know the Christmas list for the difficult to buy for neurologists but alternatively we could pitch it as a kit to develop your own book club. So if you are interested in doing a book club and you think, well, which book should we go for? What should we do? Well, this gives you a very nice list of the different things with the pros and cons for each of the different things. And very importantly, um, we've given how long each of the books are, recognising that that seems to be a key feature. Um, We we haven't emphasised the ones that have been available in film form because that's obviously also sometimes a help uh, for some of our less enthusiastic readers. But we'd like to recommend it as a a small Christmas present in anticipation uh, of uh, the festive season. Great. And with that, uh, we wish you a very happy Christmas and enjoying your uh, practical neurology. Uh, And we'll be back in the new year with more of these podcasts. And and actually, one thing I would like to mention, though, before I go, is that uh, each each uh, issue there is a podcast relating to the editor's choice in other words talking to the author of the uh, editor's choice article and um, th- th- uh, we have been uh, very lucky to have had Tom Hughes doing this for the last few uh, uh, issues and Tom has stepped down and hung up his microphone and now our new podcast editor is Amy Ross Russell who has uh, done the first podcast on uh, the editor's choice, which you've heard is uh, to, uh, to do with localization and epilepsy, and that will be appearing in time for the, uh, the, the the Christmas issue. So with that, may we wish you a very happy Christmas and a happy reading of Practical Neurology, and we'll see you in the new year. And goodbye from me. Happy Christmas and goodbye from me.